This morning, I want us to think about something that we all get to do. And by all of us, I mean all of us in here this morning who've turned from living life their own way and put all their hopes for life and in death in Christ alone. Friend, have you come to that point? Have you come to the point of your life that whatever your age, that wherever you are, your situation, that you have found that you need something, you need someone beyond yourself? We don't need to be ourselves. That's the modern mantra of our world expressed in the old song of Madonna, express yourself. But now which self should you express? Your work self? Your happy hour self? Or your just out of junior high or your college self? Your I'm in a career change self? The fact is that if you live long enough that you're going to fall out of love more than once with the self that you are now sure is the real you. And in a few years, you'll all be off pursuing another version of yourself so confident that you finally found out who you are. Being ourselves, expressing ourselves, friends, is a moving target. It's like trying to slice a tomato seed. We don't need to be ourselves, Jesus said. We need to be saved from ourselves. Whoever would save his life, Jesus warned, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you have ears to understand, go and learn what that means. Those are the words of Jesus. Well, if you have turned from living life your own way, and you've placed all your hope for life and death in Christ alone, then I want to think about something this morning that all of us can do. Not only all of us can do, but every one of us is called to do. What is that? Would you locate Matthew 28? It's the first book in the Christian New Testament. You don't have a copy of the Bible. If you flip to the inside of your order of worship, there is the text there. This won't be the only passage we're looking at, but it's an important one. Here, Jesus Christ in this passage, Matthew 28, has been raised from the dead. Not raised, friends, merely in the memories of people's hearts. Not raised to be the hallucinatory projection of people in their grief. Not raised in the sense of resuscitated, but raised bodily after being certifiably dead for three days. True Christians are those who believe that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinful people like you and me, that his death on the cross paid the penalty for the sins that you and I deserve, and then on the third day he rose from the dead as proof that he had paid for and defeated all of our sin. That's the good news we believe. That's the good news that we proclaim. That's the message that true Christians embrace and treasure. So when we come to Matthew 28... The risen Jesus is making his final address to his 11 followers. And what Christ says has implications for all of us. So let's read Matthew 28, 16 to 20. And as we read, I want you to think as a follower of Christ, what is Jesus calling me to do in these words? Matthew 28, 16 to 20. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. When they saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. 
This is the word of the Lord. The risen Christ calls each one of us to one task. What is it? Did you see it in verse 19? Look at it there. Make disciples. Whatever else is on your to-do list when you get up tomorrow morning, there's one thing on your to-do list that's been written there by the, by the hand of Christ himself. What is it? Make disciples. Jesus makes a great claim in these verses. His claim in verse 18 is this. All authority has been given to me. That having paid for sins by his substitutionary death and triumphing over those sins by his resurrection, Jesus now asserts all authority. He has comprehensive authority. He has cosmic authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, on the basis of that great cosmic and comprehensive claim, now Jesus makes a great call. Make disciples. You see the word therefore at the beginning of verse 19? What's the connection between his claim in verse 18 and his call in verse 19? That's the point of the therefore. And here it is. Jesus is rooting his great call in verse 19 in his great claim in verse 18. Based on my comprehensive authority, therefore, make disciples of all nations. That's what we're thinking about this morning, that Jesus calls us to make disciples. And what I wanted to help us see this morning, I hope, I want us to think and see that we are called by Christ to be a community of disciple makers. That through some biblical texts, I want to keep stirring us up as a congregation to a culture of discipleship where discipleship is not an event or a program or a season of life, but it's a way of life. Eighteen years ago, When our church was getting started, I wrote up a series of core values with the help of some people arising from the Bible. They're on our web page today. We have hit many of them in this beginning of the year topical expositional series. One of those core commitments that's on the website 18 years ago is called relational discipleship. Here's how we define relational discipleship nearly 20 years ago. We are committed to relational discipleship. Nobody's made to be a Lone Ranger. Even the original Lone Ranger had a sidekick. We are a community of people committed to living transparent and authentic lives while stimulating each other to love and good works through the transformational power of the Holy Spirit. We will do so by prayer, God-centered preaching, observing baptism and the Lord's Supper, giving our time, our resources, gathering for worship and fellowship. I think I might tweak some things here and there if I revised it today, but the overall sense is correct. We are a community of people committed to relational discipleship, a culture of discipleship where it's a way of life, not a season of life. That's been our emphasis and our goal for 18 years, and I want to stir us up again to it, to this culture of relational discipleship. Where does it come from? Did I see 18 years ago? I don't think they existed then, but a Christianized TED Talk or a book on church growth? The idea starts right here with the risen Christ in Matthew 28. After making a great claim, Jesus issues a great call, make disciples. We are to be a community of disciple makers. I want to think of this question along four lines. The first two will get the most attention, then making some application at the end. What is this call to make disciples? What is it? What forms does this call to make disciples take? Number three, who should make disciples? Number four, what's the goal? And then five is not really a question, but I'll end with a, a quote that's been helpful to me. So what is it? What are the forms? Who should do it? What's the goal? And can you give me an extended example? So first, what is this call that Jesus gives to every one of us to make disciples? 
What does it mean? Beloved, let me put it simply like this. It might be too simple and reductionistic, but I hope it's memorable. I think Jesus' call to make disciples is a call to do two things. Making disciples is a call to evangelism and edification. It's a call to work for conversions and sanctification. It's a call to call people to believe in the good news about Jesus and then to live in light of this good news about Jesus. It's a call for evangelism and edification, conversion and sanctification, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then to walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Let's think of both components of this understanding. First, to make disciples includes evangelism. Evangelism is part of making disciples. It's the first step of making disciples. And unless people come to treasure the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope in life and death, they are not Jesus' disciples, however cool or in touch they think Jesus is. Lots of people followed Jesus in the first century. Many of them thought they were his disciples, his followers, because they liked some of the things Jesus said and they liked what he did. But Jesus often turned around on those people following him and said things like this. Unless you forsake everything and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus was evangelizing people, even people who thought they were following him. Now, with those kinds of words, Jesus is not saying there are two stages of discipleship. You can believe in me, stage one, and later you can follow me, stage two. You can believe in me, stage one, and later when you decide, you can become sold out and radical and become my disciple. Jesus is not saying you can be saved and then get surrendered later. He's saying that category of discipleship doesn't exist. To be a disciple is to be a Christian. It'd be like saying, I promise to marry you, but I won't be committed to be faithful to you until later. That doesn't work in marriage and it doesn't work with Jesus. To make disciples includes evangelism. Calling people like you and me, our friends and family, to forsake every other treasure and treasure Jesus alone. And then to follow him. Two weeks ago, Ron delivered a message on evangelism. We talked about evangelism and family Bible time last week. Why? Emmanuel Bible Church, brothers and sisters, because Jesus Christ calls us to make disciples. What does it mean? It means evangelizing lost men and women with the good news about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And the most common way, maybe the best way this happens, is not necessarily through an event or a tract, though those aren't bad, but the most common way it happens is through relationships. Most likely, that's how you came to Jesus, through a relationship of some way. The most common way you see it in the Bible, Jesus in his own life, is in the context of a relationship. And here's the simple point we've repeated before, that God uses his word to save people in the context of relationships. So the call to make disciples is a call to evangelism, relational evangelism. We're an entire church full of evangelists. We have 122 members. We have 122 evangelists in this congregation. 122 of you, that's your job when you get up in the morning. Make disciples. A culture full of discipleship includes a culture full of evangelists in which we are always seeking uh, the salvation of our family and friends through pure lives and loving confrontation. Not just as Christmas and Easter, but every day and every moment of the day. So who are the people in your network of relationships? Make disciples. 
If we don't get biblical evangelism and conversion right, we don't get discipleship right or the nature of the church right. Why? Because conversion is the first step of discipleship. Making disciples includes evangelism. Making disciples not only includes evangelism, it includes edification. That's my argument. Evangelism and edification. That's part two. That's what we often think about with edification. Discipleship not only includes conversion, treasuring Jesus alone, but growing to be like Jesus in every way. That every moment of the day, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That in 2 Peter 3.18, every moment of the day, you and I are to be growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ, our Savior, our Lord. So discipleship is about evangelism, but also about edification, calling people to believe in Christ alone and helping one another live for Christ alone. We could put two parts of this together, evangelism and edification, and we could say making disciples is evangelism and edification. What does that mean? It means calling people to believe in Christ alone and helping them live for Christ alone. That's our call. That's our responsibility. Helping one another be more like Christ, helping one another follow Christ. And I don't know about you, but I need help. Do you need help? Here's our second question. What forms does this call to make disciples take? Well, the first way we usually understand Jesus' call is in the area of missions. That's good. It's right. For Jesus speaks here of his claim over all nations, over all heaven and earth. And therefore, you should go everywhere, anywhere. That Jesus' claim of comprehensive authority then gives us great confidence to go to all nations to make disciples because all authority everywhere, it belongs to him. Whether you are in Sudan or you are in your high school, it belongs to him. All authority is his. So go. So Jesus' words should press upon us the urgency of missions. How will they call on him, they who they've not believed? And how will they believe and whom they've not heard? Therefore, go and make disciples among the nations. That's good and it's right. And we should feel as believers and as a congregation the pull of Jesus' urgent call to the nations and wonder why we have not gone or will you not go? Call to make disciples takes the form of missions. And yet missions, number two, is not the only form the call makes. Don't be confused. We are not all missionaries. That's a well-meaning phrase, but it's a misleading one. We're not all missionaries who are leaving houses and lands and crossing geographical borders to new places and faces. Don't confuse missions with this general responsibility of the second form evangelism takes. We are all called to be evangelists where we are. We're not all missionaries, but we're all evangelists. So it's a call for everyone in our church family to be an evangelist right now, every day. It does take the form of relational evangelism. So it's a call to make disciples every day. A third way we think of discipleship happening is through certain structures and events. So we make sure it's happening. Those can be helpful and useful. The Lord Jesus, in a sense, organized the crowds of 5,000. He fed them and he preached to them. But he didn't do that kind of thing all the time. That was in the context of a miracle. Without simplifying it too much, I think you find Jesus most often living life with people, interacting with them, whether he was interacting with the woman at the well as he pulled into the well, the ancient QT, whether he was picking grain on the Sabbath, or he was living for three years, day and night with 12 ordinary men and the women that surrounded them all. 
So rather than thinking of discipleship only as those three previous forms, which are all good and helpful, here's a fourth form of discipleship that I'm going for for us. Making disciples is a mindset. It's a mindset that leads to a culture. And I want to settle in a bit and drill down and think of that. That it's it, it's not haphazard and serendipitous. It's it's intentional. It's on point. The writer of Hebrews says you need to give intentional thought. That's what he means when he says consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. There's nothing passive about this kind of discipling culture mindset. Let me give you an example and then come back forward to Matthew 28. In Deuteronomy 6, we have an ancient form of discipleship that took teaching to be sure. But it was also a mindset that you had as you went through every part of your life. In other words, it was every bit as intentional in its relational discipleship and more as it was that program teaching. Listen to this ancient mode of discipleship making God gives to his people in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord with all your heart. Good. Now, how are you going to make sure that happens? Here it is. These words I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them where? When you sit in your house. And when you walk where? By the way. And where else? When you lie down. And when you rise. In fact, you will bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall even write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. So you will not forget to love me with all of your heart. Did you hear how ordinary and everyday it is? Did you hear how strategic it actually is? Sitting in your house doing laundry is a moment for discipleship. When you walk or drive to school, when you go to bed or you eat breakfast, and do you hear how teaching and diligence is involved? But more than teaching, it's in the context of a relationship. More than event, it's a way of life. Now, Jesus certainly modeled this Deuteronomy 6 mindset as the ultimate rabbi who called people to live with him every day for three years. And don't you don't we think of it? He used fig trees and birds and and seeds and bread and rocky paths and thorns and weddings and things he saw, things that he went to. He was fulfilling Deuteronomy 6 everywhere he went. He was setting a pattern for us to follow in relationships. He was starting a discipling movement, creating a community of disciple makers who every part of their day, every moment of their day, they were making disciples because this is his father's world. And we're all tour guides pointing people to the one who made and loves us. That's the point. On point, making disciples everywhere you go. In other words, think of it like this. We do have formal structures of discipleship at our church, like Sunday morning and family Bible time and a time for adults and young adults and our our young children. We have a corporate prayer time teaching us to pray. And first Fridays, we have a young adult study topic and we have shepherding groups during certain times of the year. And we have teaching times in the spring on, on Wednesday night. We have official formal structures. Sometimes we have evangelism and discipleship outreaches that are helpful. They're good for us to make new friends and to remind us how we should be doing this all the time. It brings us together and reminds us of our purpose. All of these are good and helpful. But I would say none of them are necessary per se. If we're not thoughtful, we can think making disciples cannot happen or it cannot happen as well without larger systems and structures. Sometimes it's true. Many times it's not because the biggest program we have for discipleship is each other. That's the method of Christ. 
Early on, I was writing content for our webpage, and the copy editor sent me back a part I wrote from the webpage on discipleship. There was a line that said, our biggest program for discipleship at Emmanuel is our people. And she sent it back to me and said, that's kind of a mixed metaphor or something, but people aren't a program. Now, whatever the case is grammatically, the emphasis was that the best form of discipleship, the most reproducible form in any time in any country, is not a program per se, but people involved every day engaged in evangelism and edification. People are the master's method for making disciples. He makes disciples through disciple makers. That's his method. The call then to this disciple-making mindset is not limited. It's expanded to a way of life. He calls us to live together, to help one another love Jesus more as we go through life. It's a culture. So ever, however confusing the grammar, Jesus' method of making disciples is people. Our biggest program for making disciples is people. We need to be equipped. We need to be corrected. We need to be trained. But then we need to be deployed as change agents. Instruments in the hands of the Redeemer to help other people, to help other members be more like the Redeemer. Now, one illustration that someone has given regarding the forms of discipleship is a gardening metaphor of trellises and vines with the harbingers of spring seen in the blooming of the Lenten roses and the forsythias and the eastern red bush turning purple on the way. It's purple to me. I don't know if it is, but it's beautiful. I always look for it every spring. While spring is starting to come, it's time to think of trellises and vines. We have a wooden trellis against the side of our brick house. We've already done the work. I've not done it. My wife's done the work of planting and fertilizing it and so on. Many years and times pass. But as spring approaches, we put the trellis back up here and there and a fence post here and there to direct and pending growth. The trellis will help give shape to the growing plant, to the vine, and lift the jasmine up so I don't have to bend over to smell it. It's up higher. It grows up. But what's most important is not the trellis but the vine that hopefully in a few months no one will walk up to our house and say, what lovely trellises you have. No, the vine growth is most important. That's what every gardener is interested in. While in making disciples, think of this. Here's the, there's the illustration. Here's the connection. Think of trellises and structures as forms while people, conversion and growth and Christ-likeness is the vine. Now, don't push the illustration too far. Every illustration in this case wilts or falls apart like an old trellis. But sometimes, sometimes, I said sometimes, churches and believers can stress trellises and structures and they come into churches looking for structures like they do at a fitness center with customized options for all shapes and sizes and tastes and maybe where they are in life, they need that and are helped by that. And that's great. But sometimes that kind of emphasis reveals a philosophical difference, more of a trellis-focused approach, an options-based approach of disciple-making than a vine-based approach, an approach every bit as intentional and strategic, but focused on growing people, on starting a community, on a movement, an intergenerational, on-point, always active approach. Titus 2, or growing up. I don't think my experience was limited like some of yours growing up. And it was not a bad thing per se. Don't hear me saying you saying these are bad. I'm not saying it's a bad thing per se. But in high school, I was at the church building four out of seven days and sometimes more. Why? Because making disciples ran through and was focused on trellises, on formalized structures, which aren't bad per se, but can often overtake the needed work of growing people of the vine work. And, and in a sense, it hindered you from living with people. And if you stepped back, 
The implicit disciple-making philosophy was about placing and pruning and maintaining more trellises than it was about pruning and growing people. It was about growing the things that we offer, the line of discipleship products that we have, more than about growing the people. And moreover, typically, not always, but the more formally you get people involved in something, the more needed bigger trellises arise. That can be good, but now it, but, but, but now it enters the new to administrate bigger groups, to think of all the dynamics that have to happen. It takes more time. And, and if you start too big of the like, it gets out of hand. And before you know it, it's like starting a business and you're no longer managing people, you're managing processes. And you're out of your depth quickly and you're growing trellises more than people to keep it all going. And you're exhausted from working on the trellises in a sense at the expense of the people you're trying to help. And then you hire more pastors and more pastors and more pastors because you want to run this, you want to run this, you want to run this, and you want this, and then you don't feel like you're being pastored because they're running the programs. I'm just trying to stir us up to this, to think, to, to add another category again to our thinking of discipleship. So now think of the trellis and vine illustration. Think of it, think of it, again, trellis, structures, vine, growth. They don't have to be opposed, but sometimes one overtakes the other. So here's how some believers from Australia put it in a book, Trellis of the Vine, that's in the bookstall, written around the time we got started. Here's how they describe this, this, this push and pull that they, they have seen, even in Australia. Trellis work can take over from vine work. There are committees and structures and programs and activities and fundraising efforts, and many people put lots of time into keeping them all going. But the actual work of growing the vine falls to a very few. In fact, perhaps the only time real vine growing work happens is in the regular Sunday service, and then only the pastor when he preaches the sermon. And in particular, if we are doers, if we are Martha personalities more than Mary, and we need them, I'm married to one and I'm thankful for one. But 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 we can have such a trellised focus approach because it, it looks more impressive, like more is happening, like we're getting more done because it's visible and structural and we can point to something tangible, an event, a committee, a program, a budget, an infrastructure, they write, and say that we've achieved something. That's trellis and vine, pages nine and ten. Look at look at all that's happening. Now, again, it's useful, sometimes necessary, but not always as needful as we think. The form of discipleship, the culture we want, that Jesus seemed to model most involves a way of life, intentional relational living, strategic discipleship. What would that look like? Well, it may be messier, harder at times, more behind the scenes, but I think it's more lasting, it's more enduring, and it's more reproducible. Here's an example. I've shared this quote before. It's helped me. I hope it will be helpful to you. In the last 10 years, I've shared this quote. In the last 10 years, we've taught about how to study the Bible three, maybe four different times. We've taught about evangelism, maybe three or different four times using different methods. We've taught one-to-one. We've taught through Galatians. Uh, I think I taught on context and observation and meeting. So three or four times over 10 years, I formally taught on principles of Bible study. That was a formal trust. We formally taught on on evangelism. So, so over 10 years, you have eight times or so over a few months encouraging us to make disciples and reading our Bibles with others. Our young adults are doing Bible study methods right now. Lord willing, we'll focus on it again in the spring. But in those trellised classes of evangelism and Bible study, here's the quote that I've shared. Here's the heart of what I'm arguing for this morning, that those trellises are concentrated teaching times all for the goal of vine growing, of getting people to go do it and act like the church should be and make disciples. Here's the quote that captures it for me. I hope it's helpful for you that I've shared before. Imagine, they say in Trellis and Vine, if all Christians, if all Christians as a normal part of their discipleship 
were caught up in a web of regular Bible reading. Not only digging into the word privately, but reading it strategically with their children before bed and with their spouse over breakfast. Regular Bible reading with a non-Christian colleague at work once a week over lunch. Or a new Christian for follow-up. And now here's their their their, their uh, Britishness showing. Uh, read this with a new Christian for follow-up once a fortnight for mutual encouragement. I think it's two weeks, right? Is that right? I think that's right. With a mature Christian friend once a month for mutual encouragement. It would be a chaotic web of personal relationships, prayer and Bible reading with believers and non-believers, more of a movement than a program. It's an exciting thought. It's hardly a controversial, outrageous idea. And it's at the heart of Jesus' call to make disciples. A community of disciple makers filled, empowered by the Holy Spirit. As a normal part of our life, caught up in a web of conversations, reading the Bible evangelistically and encouraging each other. It's a way of life. It can happen every day. Think about Jesus. Yes, think about Jesus. I hope this isn't special pleading, but, but think of the Lord Jesus. Think how, how, what, who he went after was a special forces tactical unit. He kept his disciple making strategy small. He chose 12 men and only 12. That's a small, small group. And in doing so, he actually practiced a kind of purposeful neglect with everybody else who wasn't among the 12. His discipleship, in a sense, was only for those 12 people. It was special forces, a SEAL Team 6 unit of discipleship. We have the one-to-one conversations Jesus had with those disciples Other times he's talking them all together, but it was ordinary every day and did not need something big to happen. It took longer, perhaps, but it lasted. The point isn't the point isn't he picked 12 and you must pick 12, but it starts smaller than you think. The main method seemed to be spending time with a few at the expense of more sometimes and then sending them out to the more to do this again. He was growing, making disciples. He was making disciples. He was making disciple making disciples. They would now do what he had done with them. And he did it with a few or a small kind of strategic structures, often hardly with anything formal at all. We've asked what it is. We've asked what forms does it take? Now, who makes disciples? Well, here's the spoiler alert. We've been hitting on it all morning. Everybody who knows Jesus. Jesus's command is not just for overseers and pastors. It's not just for adults. It's not just a command for men. It's a command for everybody who knows Jesus, young and old, male and female. I asked my daughter last night. I, I actually reviewed parts of the sermon with her. I said, does this make sense? This we read through the trailer. Where that? I said, who who are you seeking to make disciples of? Who are you in discipling relationships with? I drove in the car this morning and we prayed. I prayed with my son and I said, do you think you should be discipling anybody? Who do you think it should be? Do you think anybody should be discipling you? This is a normal part. Deuteronomy 6, you're driving in the car. They get home from work. We're all discipling somebody. Discipleship's about influence. Who is your life influencing to love Jesus more? You're to be influencing people to love Jesus and believe in him. How are you stewarding your influence? Your life? Everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. If you know Jesus, what do you mean? It means we should all be in relationships in which we're trying to help somebody believe in Jesus or be more like Jesus. We need more help. I mean, I need more help. You need more help. 
or the Lord would not have saved you and put you in this body as a church member. What do you mean by that? To make disciples is a call to help people trust Jesus alone and then to follow him and live for him alone. All of us have the opportunity to do this. Everybody has the privilege of doing this. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody's supposed to do this. Everybody gets to do this. Everybody's been filled with the Holy Spirit for this purpose. Here's how Don Carson explains Matthew 28 and applies to a believer today. Because some people look at Matthew 28 and they said that only was for the apostles for a particular point. It doesn't apply to us today. Well, here's how Carson explains this. The injunction to make disciples was given at least to the 11. But the 11 in their own role as disciples. Yes. Therefore, they are paradigms for all disciples. It's binding on all of Jesus's disciples to make others what they themselves are. Disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the privilege, brothers and sisters, that we have. Or as one writer put it, disciple making is our central task in our homes, in our neighborhoods and our churches. It means we don't have to wait for somebody to ask us. It means we don't have to wait to to ask somebody. what, what, What did I write? That didn't make sense. We don't have to wait for somebody to ask us. We don't have to wait to be asked. That's what I meant to say. We don't have to wait to be asked. He calls you to move out and make disciples. Not wait to be discipled. A culture of discipleship means we don't have to wait for it. Why? Because Paul says in Romans 15, 14 to a church just like our own. I myself am satisfied about you, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. And I'm convinced of this. You are able to instruct one another. That sounds like helping me be more like Jesus. Well, where should I start? Who should I pursue? Let me give you one example. Not the only example. Just take Titus chapter 2. In Titus 2, we have a command that older men in Christ should teach younger men in Christ and older women in Christ should teach younger women in Christ. So you know what that means? If you're a younger man, look for an older man in this congregation, just somebody who's older than you. If you're hang out with him, ask to meet with him, ask if you can read the Bible with him, ask them what's precious to them about Jesus. Why? Because older people in the church are there by God and the spirit to help you be more like his son. And what does Paul say in Titus 2 that you might be helped with the need as a young man? Go read the test and ask an older brother in Christ. Ask an older man. Likewise, if you're a younger woman, maybe even a mother, as Paul points out in Titus 2, look for an older lady in Christ in this church who's a few years ahead of you or maybe grandparent years ahead of you. Ask to meet with them. Ask them about what it's like to work and to be a mom and to be a husband. Uh, not a husband, excuse me. You know what I mean a wife and so on ask them to pray memorize a psalm together there's no fancy program it's done over laundry it's done over coffee it's done over messy tables it's that's god designed discipleship to happen in the life of the local church and if you're an older man or older woman don't wait for somebody to ask you why would you you have an apostolic command in titus 2 that if you're older than anybody in this church you should be going after somebody younger you don't need anybody to tell you an apostle's telling you what to do so So find somebody who's younger, start going to coffee with them, meet them in their workplace, meet them at the park, take a Bible study booklet from the bookstall or 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 memorize scripture, listen to them, pray with them. This is the normal rebel relationships that we should all be in. And if you're a younger parent, great day. Yes, podcasts can be helpful. Sometimes they can be books can be helpful, but look for older parents around you and you respect the you respect their way of life and you respect their marriage and, and you're respectful of how their kids are turning out. Yes, that's how go talk to them. Go meet with them. Go hang out with them and pray with them. And if you're single, 
We're brothers and sisters here. We have fathers and mothers. Is Jason here? Jason's not here. Everybody should text Jason and say, you got called out in church today. You weren't here. Last Sunday after church, Jason said, I've been really busy and I'm sitting there talking with Gwen. And Gwen says, you, I know where you're going to be though Wednesday night. You're going to be in small group Wednesday night. And I said, Mama Alexander's talking to you, Jason. Mama's talking to you. And Jason wasn't there because he was busy. And I texted him and said, Mama Gwen came after you. We're a family. Fathers and mothers, we're a family. You're not alone. We're not alone. We're to be living in relationship with each other. The church has the resources that you need. That's how God designed it. Why? Because the clearest inspired trellises we have in the Bible is people. Titus 2. That's God's inspired program. Not the only one. I get it. It's not big. It's small, but it's people. Go read Titus 2. That's the culture of discipleship. We all need to be involved in in strategic ways, ordinary ways, messy ways. And it's simpler than you think. It's not flashy. It can be ordinary. It can be messy. It's hidden and quiet. But people are Christ's program for discipleship. Here are a few other things you might say. How do I know where to start besides Titus 2? Well, we did it with evangelism. Think of family or extended family. I mean, listen, read, read Ephesians 5 and 6. And you think what your role is as a husband or wife to your husband or your wife. And then you keep reading and see what you should be doing with your children. And then if you're a, if you're a child who's professed faith in Christ, how should you be responding to your parents? Let's do this together. Let's think through these texts and pray through them together as a family. Think your members. We've covenanted together. We have a greater responsibility. You covenant together before God, the elect angels, and these brothers and sisters that you would care more for the people in this church than people outside of this church. That's the covenant you made when you joined here. Simplify your life. Think of the members in this church. Here's a real practical one. Think availability and teachability. We all have schedules. And yes, we need to think, am I too busy? Do I need to... Yes, yes, yes. Do all of that kind of thinking. Yes, I'm not saying that. But Paul can also say in Galatians 6, as we have opportunity, let us do good. I would say in a general sense, then link up with somebody whose schedule and availability matches your own. And don't feel guilty because you can't include everyone. You can't meet with everyone. And one of the providential ways you can narrow down who you can meet with is who somebody's schedule that aligns with yours. And if someone says no, they do with me. They stop meeting with me. They don't want to do it anymore. On to the next person. And do you find someone who wants to meet? Who wants, You're mutually beneficial and at least agreeable to meet. Find somebody different from you. As you look for someone, by all means, I mean, middle-aged moms hang out with middle-aged moms. Yes. And married couples spend time with married couples. Yes, yes. And singles in their 20s hang out with. Yes, 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 yes. But also consider what you might learn from spending time with people who have nothing to do with your stage of life. How much God has to teach us about himself from people who are different for us in the church and how the gospel is displayed in our unity, not just the unity of liking each other that we already like, but learning from people. It's this intergenerational nature that we need. Oh, what role do pastors have? That that turns to the goal. Would you turn to Ephesians 4? You can listen to Ephesians 4. What, what's the goal of all this? It comes. Here's our, our fourth question. Calls to make disciples. It can take many forms. Praise the Lord. It can take many forms. At the heart of it, it's this relational living with each other. What's the goal? Well, look at Ephesians 4. And here Paul's us, Paul tells us what the role of elders and pastors is in this discipleship way. He includes the goal. Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, there you go. You have been given a gift of grace because of Christ's work on the cross. 
And when he ascended on high, here's the next few verses. Part of his ascension meant this. As Christ ascended, he was giving out gifts left and right. He was giving the spoils of the atonement and the resurrection. And in his ascension, you know what gifts he was giving? Verse 11. He was giving apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Why? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The Lord Jesus does give church leaders as gifts, but he doesn't give them to do the work of the ministry, but to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Like what? Building up the body of Christ. That sounds an awful lot like discipleship. He gives leaders to churches. Why? To preach and teach God's word so that saints will in turn do the work of the ministry. Building up of the body of Christ. That's called discipleship. It reinforces what we saw earlier. We're all called to do that. And all of us have been given at least one gift by the Spirit. I assume that if you're a member of this church, the sovereign God, the omnipotent Spirit placed you in this body with your gifts to help us become like Jesus. Don't be selfish with your life. Pour it into somebody. Somebody. Paul explains this in 1 Thessalonians. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you're doing. Now, that's a responsibility laid on all of us, 1 Thessalonians. But then, as Paul so often does, he makes a general statement and then he he categorizes it. Yes, therefore, encourage one another as you're doing. Great. Then he turns to the elders and he says, respect those who are over you and the Lord who admonish you. That's their job, admonish you, esteem them very highly. And then he goes to the members. Here's what encouraging means. Be at peace. We urge you, brothers, admonish, encourage, help, be patient. Don't repay evil for evil and do good. That's a culture of discipleship in which pastors disciple others to do the work of the ministry. Several, 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 several years ago, I said that so you wouldn't think who it is. I don't think anybody knows who it is. A church member told me they'd not seen another member for a time. And I said, what do you think you should do? And they said, I don't know, but I thought you should know and be aware so you could reach out to them. To which I said, I wasn't aware they've missed as much as you said. I think you should reach out to them since the Lord allowed you to notice. Later, they said that changed the way I looked at discipleship in a church. What was happening? I was encouraging them to do the work of the ministry, to help another follower love Jesus better. Matthew 28 and Ephesians 4 are taking place. Jesus commissions all of us. The Spirit gives everyone us. He's calling all people, young and old, men and women who know Jesus, to be calling people to love Jesus and to follow Jesus. So what's the goal? Well, you saw the goal. The goal is verse 13. Until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal is maturity in Christ. We're called to help each other grow up into Christ, to know about him more, to love him more. And and the point is, you won't love God as much as you need to. You don't love him as much as you think you do unless you're in a relationship with somebody. That's the point of this. And Paul, it's so important. We saw Paul prays for it in Ephesians 3. He prayed that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And now in Ephesians 4, he says, Not only do we pray for that maturity, but the risen Christ has gifted us so that we can work and help each other work towards that maturity, that we can attain the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. We need each other to make it happen. This is the Christ who makes disciples through disciples. I just I'm just trying 
I think this is my final message in this beginning of the year thing. So we'll, we'll move on from here. But I just I want to come back to the Great Commission and stir us up to keep to this culture of discipleship where we're not handicapped by by lack of things or, or creating new structures. But the simplest and lasting relational way is is this mindset, this movement, a culture of 120 evangelists and discipleships, disciples here in this building. Now, I know it's happening with many of you already. It's been the history of our congregation. I'll just mention a few names. I know that I, I know that Cindy, a younger uh, believer, has been meeting with Gwen, and they've been doing puzzles together as they talk about life and Jesus. I know that some of you in here have taken pizza to some of the young adults who are all at the same school, and you don't have anybody in that group. I know that I remember Nancy remarking about seeing some young men meeting over at Chick-fil-A and, and Mark commenting on how she's seen them grow. Nick and Peyton, Nick, who is a member, Peyton, who's not, showed up at my son's basketball game. Jason got so excited about this, he got a, two young adults, a college student, to meet and study the Bible on Saturday mornings. Or Sherry Ferguson told me this week she was meeting up with a lady to help her paint to build a friendship so she could talk to her about Jesus. I want to encourage you that is happening and it can be happening all the more. It's relational discipleship, relational evangelism, this movement, this way of life. It's normal to read the Bible. It should be normal in a chaotic web of relationships to read the Bible. And here's all you have to say. Are you ready? Would you be willing to read the Bible with me for the next six weeks? That's all you have to say. That's it. That's the secret sauce. Go ahead and write it down. Just ask that. Or you just say, can I just hang out with you and, and just watch you a little bit? I mean, not watch, you know, just go to the basketball game. Be in our, one another's lives. But now here's an illustration. Here's an illustration. Can I put all this together? I, w- I want, here, can I step back? Do you, do you see how much the Lord Jesus loves us? That he, he sent his son to recapture our lives from selfish living and to forgive us of our sins. And he gave us the Holy Spirit. And then he placed us in a body of believers who would help us know this one who loves us more and know his love more. And we have the awesome, weighty, sobering, heartbreaking, frustrating, yes, glorious privilege of helping you to love Jesus better through a church. Let me put this together and just say, I want you to think people. And if, and, and if you're a structure list person, great. Let, do this with people. Ready? Let me give you this illustration. Not mine. I want to illustrate what this mind shifts means in one nitty gritty example. Imagine a reasonably solid Christian says to you after church. Now, this is coming to pastors, but apply it. One Sunday morning. Look, I want to get more involved here and make a contribution, but I don't feel like there's anything to do. Maybe I can even start something. I'm not on the inside and I don't get asked to do things, but I want to do things. What can I do or can I start something? Now, What would you immediately think or say? You could start thinking of some event or program about to start that they could help with. Some job that needed doing, a ministry they can join or support. That's how we're used to thinking about discipleship and involvement of church members and congregational life in terms of roles, in terms of trellises, an usher, a Bible study teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a treasurer, an elder, a musician, a song leader, a money counter, and so on. That getting people involved and active means finding a ministry job and then putting them to do something or letting them start something. 
That, the authors are saying, is a trellis-centered way of thinking. However, if the real work of God is people, the prayerful speaking of his word by one person to another, then the jobs are never all taken. The opportunities for Christians to minister personally to others is limitless. So you could pause and reply to your friend. You see that guy sitting over there on his own? That's Julie's husband. He's on the fringe of things here at the church. Or I'm not even sure that he's crossed the line yet, become a Christian. What if I introduce you to him and arrange to have breakfast with him once every other week and you read the Bible with him? Or do you see that couple over there? They're both fairly recently converted. Or maybe they're new to the church. They're in need of encouragement and mentoring. Why don't you and your wife have them over to your house, get to know them, read and pray together with them, just start with once a month? Or, in talking with you, I realize that you and Billy Chuck Bob are both on the same Bible reading plan. Do you know Billy Chuck Bob? Why don't you meet with Billy Chuck Bob and start reading with him and sharing what you're learning as you're reading the Bible and see what comes from that? Or I know you're a college student. But... But but don't look past your own life. What if, what if, I'm just saying what if, what if you invited the person right behind you to her dorm room and you fed them ramen and you asked them how you could pray for them? And if you still have time and you want to contribute some more to what's going on here, start praying for the people in your street. Invite them all to a barbecue at your house. That's the first step towards talking with them about Jesus or inviting them along to something. Of course, there's every chance the person will say, I don't know how to do those things. I'm not sure I know what to say or where to start. To which you would reply, oh, that's okay. Let's start meeting together and praying and talking and let me help you think about that. Do you see this? This is a culture of disciple-making disciple-makers. This ministry mindset, this movement, all authority is given to me. I want you to make disciples. So go make disciples. What an honor. What an opportunity. Who are you making disciples of? Who will you ask to help you love Jesus more? Who? The Lord loves us. And he's given each other to prove it. We're all here to help each other be more like Jesus. May the Lord help us. May the Lord help me. I love you all. Let's grow in grace. Together. For the gospel.